You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. From the author of the book by the same name, it's The Best Saturdays of Our Lives Podcast with Mark McRae. Welcome back, everyone, to the Best Saturdays of Our Lives Podcast. I'm Dan Klink, and of course, here with Mark McRae. And uh, real quick, uh, you know, we're about to jump into our time at SC Comic Con Junior a few weeks ago, and we had another great interview with our good friend Bill Gallier. But first, Mark, your celebrity star is on the rise. You were you were on television not too long ago, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. I uh, was tapped to be a guest co-host on TCM. Yeah, it was part of the hundred year. Fleischer anniversary special that was running on TCM over the course of two weekends. And uh, I got the chance to talk about Richard Fleischer, who is Max Fleischer's son. So Richard Fleischer is uh, animation royalty. Right. So I had a chance to talk about Max Fleischer, Richard Fleischer, The Best Saturdays of Our Lives book, our podcast, and movies. Yeah, no, it was cool. It was so cool getting to see my main man, Mark, up there on the small screen talking about the big screen. I got all giddy inside, especially when the host would mention and podcast. I loved it. Mm -hmm. I loved it. (laughs) As only Alicia Malone, who was my uh, awesome and wonderful co-host, could say. Yeah, she was great. Yeah, Alicia made me feel comfortable right away. And she was funny, and uh, we had a great time filming and talking about movies. We talked about Fantastic Voyage from 1966, and we talked about Armored Car Robbery movie that was from 1950, a film noir that was uh, both films directed by Richard Fleischer. Yeah. Uh, so it was a really, really good time. Yeah, and what I thought was really cool, in all four segments, the lead-in and lead-out to uh, Fantastic Voyage, and then again with Armored Car Robbery, you were uh, able to kind of thread this notion that Max Fleischer was not only pushing the boundaries of animation, but pushing the notion of who animation is for, what the audience is, and how generally, certainly in the United States, animation has been considered the domain of, of children, and how Max Fleischer was really trying to broaden the definition of who that audience should be appealing to uh, adults, appealing to families as a whole and, and, you know, expanding on who the medium is, uh, is really there to service. Right. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, animation historians who look at that era of animation from the silent era, as well as the golden era, as you know, like those cartoons were for a general audience. And that is true, but these animators, they knew that adults would be watching these cartoons as well. And so it was always cool if they were able to put some great animation innovations in the cartoons that maybe the kid audience might not notice, but an adult might notice. Right. So I I think that Max Fleischer was always trying to, technology-wise, increase what the animated cartoon could be, the potential of what it could be. I believe that's why he is so admired. He was really, really trying to, uh, and succeeding, actually. I shouldn't even say trying. <laughs> he right. was succeeding at pulling up the, bo- the bootstraps 
of the animation industry. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Again, right. And, and right. Because at the end of the day, while yes, those cartoons were really for a general audience, when the 1950s come rolling around and television is taking a huge chunk out of the theatrical movie business, what's the first thing that MGM does? It gets rid of his animation unit. Right. Right. And, you know, I don't think that there was anyone in the room saying we shouldn't get rid of our animation unit because those cartoons are for adults, too. Exactly. I don't think anyone in the room made that argument. Right. right. <laughs> they said, well, animation is not that important. It's for kids. Let's get rid of it. I, I bet you that was more of how that decision went down. Yeah. You know, so well. in spite of who that audience was for, silent and golden age animation. The Suits considered it <laughs> entertainment for children. Cartoons. Cartoons for kids. And it was Cartoons, in that. Right. And that was that. We know it's also right, that's cool. the reality. Talk about, you know, Max Fleischer uh, being an innovator. If you look at Richard Fleischer, look at Fantastic Voyage. Certainly mm -hmm. one of the groundbreaking special effects films of its day. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like the special effects in Fantastic Voyage are just that, fantastic. Yeah. And one of the things I didn't mention on the TCM Fleischer special was that they went through great lengths talking to doctors and physicians and surgical doctors about what does the inside of the body really look like or right. what they think it might look like. Right. It really right. gave the film a lot of credibility. Totally. And you know, one of the things that I noticed watching it, you know, I'd seen it certainly before, but watching it through fresh eyes and, you know, again, starring, uh, starring Mark McRae with your, with your TCM mm -hmm. intro, how there were a lot of scenes <laughs> like, like on the bridge of the ship where we're having a dramatic moment. They're delivering some exposition. The plot is moving forward yet behind them out the windows and even above them, you see, you know, the inner workings of the body outside of their ship. Up until that time, and this may not be the first example of it, but it's one of the earliest examples that I recognize. You know, generally, when there's a special effects shot, it's like, wow, hey, everybody, check out this special effects shot. Whereas with Fantastic Voyage, so much of it is behind the action. We have the drama of the story unfolding, and the special effects are used simply to enhance right. as a dramatic right. device, as opposed to an out-and-out -out spectacle. It was subtle and measured in its use, and it really helped me understand place, time, and setting within the story and mm -hmm. what was happening. And I thought that was a, a very classy use of special effects, again, back in a time where usually it's like, all right, hold up, everybody. We're going to have an explosion now. Hold up, everyone. The spaceship's going to land. It's like, you know, we also have a setting to, to fully f flesh out as well. And I thought that right. was that, that just unto itself taking that that measured approach was was groundbreaking. Oh yeah, and that's such a great explanation, Dan. I mean, when I'm lecturing to students, animation students, you know, one of the things I like talking about is like it doesn't matter if you have all the bells and whistles for a project or if you don't have it, you still have to figure out budgeting. Mm -hmm. Even for special effects. Yeah. And you don't want the special effects to take over your story. Right. So you know, so your your entire point about how the special effects, how they were used in the movie and how it was a measured use of special effects um, is a really great point. You know, thank you. That's that's what I'm here for, Mark, is just for you to tell me. Uh, <laughs> I love that. Though. How, how, I mean, I'm doing good, making good points. Mm -hmm. I'm paying attention. 
<laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. You know, one of the other funny things about the movie is that uh, Stephen Boyd's character, a couple of times saying, I'm not sure if I want to do this mission. <laughs> and I thought that was kind of funny too, because I think that's how I would be. I'm just like, wait a minute, you can shrink people? Yeah, right. And then later, his character is having um, a conversation with Raquel Welch's character. Her name is Cora. And Cora just matter-of-factly says, well, I've been working for the CMDF for the last five years. Right. And, you know, Stephen Boyd just kind of looks at her like, oh, okay, so you guys have been around for a while. It's her way of saying, hey, these people know what they're doing. This, right. this organization just didn't pop up overnight. We've been experimenting with shrinking people for a long time. Right. And so it's like little things like that that kind of thread the story along to kind of let you know that, well, we know that this technology is at least five years old and Stephen Boyd, your character needs to calm down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, you're, you're, you're in good hands, buddy. Stop making this about you. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Even though, you know, you're getting paid to... I mean, like, James Bond wouldn't turn down a mission because he thought it was too dangerous. Yeah, right. He wouldn't be sitting there whining about, no. uh, you know, has somebody tested this jetpack? Do we really know if this laser pen <laughs> is going to work? No. No, other people, other people were on payroll to figure all that out before the fact. Oh, my gosh. But that would make a, gr a really funny, great bon uh, James Bond scene where he is using something that Q invented and it, it didn't work the right way. Right. You know, and now what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Well, I guess now you got to do some real spy work, buddy. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yes, yeah, so I thought that was interesting as well that um, established that this organization had been around for five years. And it also, the story in the beginning established that the Russians had similar technology. Yeah. You know, and that's the whole point of the story that the scientist that has the information, because they were all having trouble with um, controlling how long a subject can stay miniaturized. Right. And this scientist from Russia who was defecting, who the Russians tried to take out in the beginning of the movie, he had the information. What what year was the movie? 67? 66. 66. So, you know, we're, we're going to miniaturize people. We're going to have a, a high-budget blockbuster type of film with uh, science and intrigue. It's 66. You still have to have a Cold War angle on it. I mean, I think uh, that might have been mandated by Hollywood back in the day. Those those <laughs> those darned Ruskies, man. They're I mean, just as much as Vietnam mm -hmm. and Afghanistan were proxy wars. Now, so is the human oh body. So gosh. so is the human body. Right. Because even in the animated series, in one of the episodes where they are going up against the Russians, like the Russians know in the episode about the CMDF. But still for sabotage. Oh, like yeah. one episode, they had a satellite in space that was spying on U.S. intelligence agencies. Right. But everything was miniaturized. And so it, it's, it's just it was just kind of interesting seeing how, OK, we're not going to be shrinking people, but we're going to use miniature things to counter the U.S. and the CMDF. You know, it's, what's funny, too, is it kind of lays out the whole double standards of the Cold War without being self-aware of its own double standards. How we and the Soviets, we're doing the exact same nonsense, but ours is in the case of liberty. Theirs is always with a nefarious angle. Right. Yet, why are we doing the same thing here, buddy? 
(laughs) (laughs) Because our way is the right way. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. We, We shrink people in the name of freedom. Right, right. Well, we shrink technology (laughs) to stop the Americans and their propaganda. That's right. To take down the Western capitalist agenda. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. (laughs) I'm like, okay. Anyway, but uh, yeah, so good stuff. And I'm glad I got to talk about the cartoon series. And that's the other part, too, that they kept in that I was really happy about. Because Alicia and I shared a joke. At the end, she says, well, did they make it in the prime time? And I said, no, no. we both laughed about it. <laughs> right. So we even got a chance to roast the cartoon a little bit or roast my theory, you know, right. whatever. You know, now we were laughing and joking in between takes, too. But that little joke actually was like one of my favorite moments that we were able to share a laugh. So so that was cool. It was an amazing interview with Mark McRae on TCM, uh, Turner Classic Movies. I know both films are on the app. You'll catch the interview at both the beginning and the end of Fantastic Voyage and Armored Car Robbery. Now, Fantastic Voyage is due to expire on the app on October 23rd, so hurry up and get there. Armored Car Robbery expires on November 8th. Again, beginning and end, both films one interview in four parts. Turner Classic Movies. Go check it out. Right. Do you like podcasts? Then you're gonna hate Thunder Talk. Tasteless subject matter. Mature humor. Contempt for our co-hosts. Unapologetic social views. Edgy music. And total irreverence for the nerd junk we love. Are all reasons why no one. No one. No one should listen to Thunder Talk. Find us on the ESO Network. And all podcasting platforms. Or don't. Whatever. Hello. Have you ever wondered how much Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster sold Superman's rights to DC for? Or which uh, popular football star was Sam Wilson the Falcon's physical appearance based on? You can find all that and more at the History of Comics podcast, a podcast dedicated to the creators, events, history, and the companies that made the great comic book medium. Hosted and created by your friendly neighborhood, J.T. Wheatley. Please give it a listen at iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, and all our podcasting platforms. Thank you, and go ahead and enjoy yourself a good comic book. Moving on to Bill Gallier. Yep, our good friend Bill was at SE Comic Con Jr. here in Greenville, South Carolina a couple of weeks ago. We sat down with him earlier this year at the full SE Comic Con convention that we that we have here. Uh, he was gracious enough to hang out with us again this time. And this time Mark was able to to come along as well, able to get up here from Atlanta, spend the day in the uh down in the upstate. Yeah, so it was really great. I got to meet Bill Gallier in person. We've emailed each other and I'm his friend on Facebook, but uh, I got to meet him in person this time. And I also got to meet his lovely wife as well. And we were talking so much (laughs) that we decided, well, you know what? (laughs) Why don't we just interview you and I can ask you some more questions and theories and things. And one of the big questions I wanted to ask Bill was, what was the artist deadline back in the day? Like, when did the artist have to have the art ready for publication? Right. 
Right. So Dan and I, we always joke around about in comic books and in animation, there's always the who came first, you know, the chicken or the egg. Exactly. And in the case of Fred from Scooby-Doo, the character Fred from Mm Scooby-Doo and his brother from another mother, Alan from Josie and the Pussycats, we were trying to figure out when Alan was actually created. Right. And so uh, we have a really interesting debate with Bill about what came first or who came first or what was the publication? Like, when do we think Dan DiCarlo actually created Alan for the Josie comic book? It wasn't Josie and the Pussycats yet. It was just She's Josie right. at the time. Right. We asked uh, Bill what came first, the Alan or the egg. So let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's, let's jump into that interview. We're here at South Carolina Comic-Con Jr. talking to Bill Gallier who has also been um, a guest on our podcast uh, probably a couple of months ago. So we, this is the first time we're meeting in person, super excited. And I wanted to ask Bill, uh, it's actually more of a comic book question. So for a comic book artist like yourself, so this is like a part A and part B. Okay. A comic book artist like yourself, when you have to submit art to Archie Comics, what is the turnaround like? Is it two months? Is it eight weeks? Is it three months? Oh, before the book comes out? Yes. It varies. I would say right now, I'm thinking, let's see what I'm working on now. I'm working on a snowboard story, which will probably be out February. So maybe about, yeah, four months. Four months? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so, because Halloween stuff I probably did back in July, so I think it's about a four-month span. Covers, of course, run a little more ahead, so, you know, you're going to, because they have to promote those, so I'd say covers maybe five to six months. Five to six months? Yeah. So, like, I think covers now we're doing are for springtime. I had no idea. So... So back in the day, so the reason I'm asking this question is because, you know, there's always been this sort of controversy of Alan from Josie and the Pussycats looking a lot like Fred from Scooby-Doo. Right. So I know that Fred from Scooby-Doo was created in the fall of 1968. Okay. Because that's when Hanna-Barbera started pitching the series. Right. After the Archies became like the biggest thing to hit Saturday morning. Right. I don't think Dan DiCarlo, who created the Alan character was watching Saturday morning or, or Archie's or whatever. But I'm trying to figure out when Alan was created. So he's actually on the cover and it says the book is dated August 1969. Okay. So were the deadlines the same back in the day as they are uh, now? No, I'm sure they were working a lot. Yeah, because the books were probably monthly then, so they were working tighter schedules. So, yeah, you're right. It could have been um, done, like, maybe, let's say, a month ahead of time. So, it, it, I, yeah. Dan had asked me about that before, and I was okay. wondering, and I tried to research it a bit, and I never came to a good conclusion either. Right, right. But I don't think Alan was in the comics before the show. Correct. So, um, yeah, I mean, it does, and, and I never really realized the resemblance until you mentioned that. Right. So maybe they figured they need a similar character for Josie that was in Scooby-Doo. Maybe. I, I don't know, but I, I just feel like, I guess out of respect for Dan DiCarlo, who yeah. has drawn 
so many teenagers over the years in the 50s and 60s, I feel like maybe even a prototype of Allen existed earlier that he decided to use. Well, now, it could have been, I mean, if... I know with the other shows that they've had, like the new Archies and Archie's Rude Mysteries, like the animation company would send us style sheets. And so then whenever I would do a story with those characters, I'd follow the style sheets. So if the Josie show was in production before, which I'm sure, before then, which I'm sure it was. Yeah, it probably was in production like from January 1969. And so they could have sent style sheets to Archie, and maybe Dan DiCarlo kind of did his take on Allen for that yeah, cover. Maybe. Josie showed up in the fall of 1970. Allen showed up like around, like I said, he, he the, the summer issue hit in the summer of 1970. Okay. So I'm thinking that maybe Allen was created in the spring of and 1970. Of course, Joy, uh, Josie was a character back in the 60s. Right, right. And I, you know, I think it was with, which I'm sure you know, just from the publicity of Archie, they probably figured, let's find another character. And so I guess it could have been they used Josie as a central character, created those other characters around her. Because I, I, the original comic of Josie, it was like Pepper, right, and um, Melody. yeah, Melody was in that one. Yeah, and Albert was the first boyfriend. Right, and uh, Alexandra and, and Alex were there too. Yeah. Um, and so Alex I don't know why. You know, maybe they were just trying to, you know, come up with another male character. I'm not right, sure, right. but yeah. I, I, I just, I, I guess, I'm trying to prove that maybe. Dan DiCarlo and Iwu Takamoto, who created Fred, yeah. they were just created as... I don't think either one knew about each other, or just were one of those coincidences, that you was know? Josie Filmation, or was that Hanna-Barbera? It was Hanna-Barbera, Hanna right. They were both Hanna-Barbera. Yeah, um, Archie was Filmation, and Josie was Hanna-Barbera. Right. Uh, Josie was supposed to be Filmation, but there's a whole backstory about how the network sort of went behind Hanna, uh, went behind Filmation's oh. back and pitched the story to Hanna Barbera and oh. said, "Okay, you guys see what you can do with these characters." And I knew the guys from Filmation too, yeah. you know, because it was kind of like I heard the Filmation story in 2004, okay. and then one day I was at work. And Van Partible, from, who created Johnny Bravo, was in the office, and I was asking him Josie questions. And he says, well, there's a couple of semi-retired Hanna-Barbera animators. They're working today. You should give one of them a call. And this guy named Jerry Eisenberg uh, answered the phone, and he told me the whole story about how Fred Silverman, who was running CBS, went behind Filmation's back and pitched the show to Hanna-Barbera. Now, to be perfectly honest, I think that was the right move yeah. because Hanna-Barbera came up with a completely different concept that worked that was outside of what was going on in the comic book. Because, you know, with the Archies, they had the music. Sabrina had the magic. And I think Fred Silverman was afraid that Josie was just going to be like a knockoff of the other two. Right. And so Hanna-Barbera's approach the wrong kids in the wrong place at the wrong time who rise through the occasion to save the super you know to stop the super villain you know sort of worked yeah and gave the show a different tone and i think if filmation had done that it would have been exactly like it was in a comic book i mean that's my theory yeah no i think that's a good point right well, and then we wouldn't have got the space adventures either so right, right, exactly exactly so uh, yeah 
this anyway, so I figured let me just ask again because I'm yeah, trying no, to. That's, that's, it is an interesting question. Like I said, I couldn't get a definitive answer to it when I was trying to do a little research. Because I think the same thing happened in the DC universe with um, I think Martian Manhunter was created around the same time that uh, the Vision on the Marvel side was created. And it's something that both creators sort of talked about, that they knew each other as friends, but it was just something that was in the universe right. at the time. So, just one of those weird coincidences. Well, it's the same thing when the Sabrina sitcom was on, like, you know, we changed the look of Anne Hilda and Aunt Zelda to look a little, didn't make them look like the actresses on the show, but made them look more modern, you know? So it's kind of like, or, you know, it, Maybe if you're not going to show, follow the show verbatim, just kind of put them more in that direction so it fits in better. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, Sabrina, the animated series, I think you bring up a great point because that show really put Sabrina on the map as far as the character. I mean, it was the earlier Filmation series which was successful, but I think the Melissa Joan Hart series sort of made Sabrina a lot more mainstream yeah. than the earlier incarnations. And so... I guess Archie Comics was like, hey, why don't we just change the characters up a little bit? Right. You know, make them seem, you know, right, right. a little more modern. Uh-huh. And then, and then with Sabrina, I'm not sure if Harvey was a character before the... Um... Oh, so, so I know a little something about that. Oh, okay. All right, so, so Harvey, well, the character himself was technically another character that Dan DiCarlo in one of Dan DiCarlo's early Madhouse oh, comic stories. Okay. But he could have been called Steve or Paul right, right. or something like that. So when Filmation created the cartoon, they took that character and gave him the name Harvey. Oh, okay. And I don't know if that was because they couldn't remember the original character's name. Right, right. <laughs> but, but that's what happened. I, and I wish that I knew what Madhouse it was. I have it. Oh, okay. It's in my collection. Right. But I just remembered that he was called somebody else, okay. you know, like a Paul yeah. or whatever. Right. Um, and so, yeah. And the other interesting thing, on Hilda, you know, she was green in the beginning. Like, oh. back in the day. Right. And Archie Comics published a Sabrina story, like, around 1968. Yeah. Where Sabrina and Hilda are, like, in the same house. Uh-huh. And that had never happened before, too. They were sort of, like, separate characters. Okay. And, and in that comic book where they're together, that's when they changed her skin from green to white. Okay, I yeah. never realized the green thing. Yeah. Wow. Like, like, in fact, I feel like Hilda was the biggest star uh-huh. of Madhouse comics oh, yeah. Yeah. than Sabrina was. I, yeah, I do remember seeing that, right. but I didn't realize that was actually Hilda, but now that makes sense. Right. Yeah. So it was almost like the company was sort of prepping them. Yeah. You know, the cartoon's coming, so... <laughs> I think I saw an Archie story one time from before the Archie show came out, and it made it sound like Hot Dog was Archie's dog instead of Jughead's. And I think maybe they got it... You know, they tried to go ahead and use it in the story, but got it wrong that that, wasn't Jug, that that was Jughead's dog instead. Right, right. So I can't remember what story that... I think I remember somewhere in the archives at the Archie office or something. Yeah, but it was like... And, you know, maybe it was changed and was reprinted later in the Digest or whatever, but it made it sound like Hot Dog was Archie's dog. Yeah, yeah. I could definitely see that. Um, I'm sure when you're getting a new series going, you're going to the company that owns the property, give them the information, some stuff's going to fall between the cracks. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Or 
they're gonna make their own decisions about things. You know what I mean? Um, uh, yeah, because the thing that always threw me too was from season one, Archie, from the Filmation series, they had Jughead fall in love with this girl named, um, I can't even think of the character's name right now. Yeah. But you know, in season two, they brought in Big Ethel. But Big Ethel had been around during season one, and I'm like, okay, why didn't they just bring Big Ethel in, you know? But I guess since Jughead really didn't like Big Ethel, they wanted him to fall in love with a girl that wasn't Big Ethel. But to me, that would have been like the perfect time. Yeah, everybody was always looking for that. To bring Ethel in. But there's like all these oddities too, because like Big Moose only shows up one time in season one. And it's time and then only one time. And it's a psych day. I so think the, I remember that one. Or I remember a, I can't picture the cell or something. Right. Maybe. And the Archie's car is going one way, and Moose can't remember what his mother sent him to the store to get. And then the car goes the other way, and Moose is like, What did my mom tell me to get again? And, and that's it. But then, like, his presence increases exponentially in season two. So. It's just one of those things. It is, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? So, what are you working on now? What's new and exciting going on? Well, um, I've been writing some stuff and, like I said, drawing some stuff. So, and usually I do uh, cover ideas. And then, um, like I said, we usually do those a little bit ahead of time, about six months. Uh, there's about, you know, several of us will pitch cover ideas. And then we'll get feedback from the editorial staff about which ones they're approving. And we go, I go ahead and do the art for that. It's one I'm doing. And same thing with scripts, like I'll get um, usually what book the story's for, and maybe, you know, an idea of what the cover is kind of help influence, you know, get help me with an idea. And um, I'll do the script, and then usually at that time, I'm not sure if I'm going to be drawing it or somebody else does. So that's interesting because sometimes you wind up with somebody else's script, which is fun, you know. Because, like, um, you know, maybe sometimes you kind of get in a rut and do your own stuff. So like the story I'm doing now, they're snowboarding, and it's it's um, by Francis Bonet, and it's it's kind of cool because it's a different take of the way I would have probably written it, you know. So I feel like I'm a little more free with what's going on. I think one of the other questions I wanted to ask that I forgot to tell Dan to ask, or maybe I did. Um, we'll find out. How did you and Dan Parent come up with the idea for the carnage? Oh. Yeah, yes. Well, actually, when I was in, did I? Do we do that one? I'm pretty sure. Okay. Yeah. I'll just, I'll recap just Let's in case. Do it again, everybody. Yeah. Uh, classic flashback. Reboot. Uh, re- reboot. Reboot. There you go. Reboot of that conversation. Well, we were, we both went to Kubert School from '84 to '87, and so I think it was the last year, '87, Joe Kubert's class. We had to come up with an original story, and so I did. And I'd always, I kind of had the carnies in my mind at, before then, but I did that as my story for Kubert School. It's like three-page, four-page story or something. And so then it was always kind of like on the back burner. And then when Dan and I were both at Archie, we were going to um, go to the San Diego Comic-Con. And I, well, I think this is before we planned to go, but we we just, we just pitched Archie to doing a Carney's book. We did the Carney's book, and we promoted it at San Diego Comic-Con. And you know how it is with that stuff. Like There's kind of like a buzz at first, and think, oh, maybe this is going to take off. But uh, Which was fun. But um, anyway, so then, but it was just fun to get a chance to do it and work on it. Yeah. Uh, are you a fan of American Horror Story? I, 
I have uh, seen a few of them. I haven't seen all of them, but I know they had a carnival they thing too. And I just, I was like, wow, like watching it, because it was a lot of, you know, they had the strong man, they had the, the, uh, the, um, the conjoined twins. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the bearded lady, you know, they had yeah. all, the, all the types that you would I think see. Dan, Dan's uh, parent had told, told me about it or sent me a link to it or something right. when that was going on. That was yeah. interesting. And it was almost like watching the carnies yeah. in real life, you know? And, and I just thought it was the coolest thing. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, of course, oh, we did know. try, like, we did do a day, we tried doing a daily strip during that period, too. Oh, really? And, of course, as they say, it's always, like, really hard to get into that stuff. So while we were in California for the uh, San Diego Comic-Con, we actually went to, like, one of the syndicates and, and presented it. And, um, you know, like I said, it didn't really go anywhere, but it's just fun, like, learning that process and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. yeah that's awesome. Yeah, I, I heard that the whole syndicated thing... Is, is kind of hard um, because before my book was a book it was a newsletter and I also tried to look into just getting my newsletter syndicated and I called up uh, Liz Smith's office and she was had a she worked for the Daily News in New York and she had um, you know a lot of readers and I was just calling for advice yeah and she had like these two old guys working for her they, they both I think they were both about a hundred years old each <laughs> and when I called, I said, well, you know, I told them, you know, who I was and I just wanted some advice, like, well, how, how could someone like myself get syndicated? And the guy goes, well, just call up the syndicators and ask them to be syndicated. Bang, oh, hung up the phone. Wow, thanks a lot. <laughs> and it was so discouraging. Uh, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Which now it's probably even harder than it was then because, I mean, it, it, with the comic strips where they're like postage stamp size now if they still have them in the papers yeah so yeah. it's just not the big thing it was like years ago so yeah so like if someone wanted like I noticed something that you know like Dan Parent does like the archified thing I mean do you do any do you have services like that where people can come to you and say hey I have a book can you create a cover for me or something like that? Like, do you oh, yeah. do? Yeah, I, I do that. You know, commission work or whatever. Yeah, I do that as well. So, so the best way to contact you is through your website? Yeah, website or my email. Um, so either of those. So, yeah, and um, that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Yeah. Okay. But, yeah, I'm always willing up, willing for it and up up to hearing what somebody's got going on, if they're interested in some work or particular sketch or something like that, you know, commission or whatever. And what would that email ad and uh, uh, web address be? Email is gogollier at gmail.com. So G-O-G-O-L-L-I-H-E-R, my last name, at gmail.com. What was the other thing? Oh, the website is uh, billgollier.com. That one's easy. <laughs> and, uh, all of that will be in the show notes, everybody. Just scroll down and just click the link. Check out our good friend, Bill Gollier. Thanks for hanging out with us uh, at the uh, at this junior SC yeah, Comic Con. A lot of fun. So, Brittany, Martha... <laughs> Tell me about your podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> it's like we're in sync, but also kind of a disaster. We are always a disaster. So our podcast is fun if you want to hear two people talk about and complain about stuff that <laughs> they love and also hate. And drink. And drink. And the show is Thanks. called? Oh. <laughs>
But, but first, let's, let's talk, talk nerdy. nerdy. And you can find us on the ESO Network. Bye-bye. See you next Tuesday. <laughs> Welcome to Dr. Geek's Laboratory. Dr. Geek here with another reminder that the ESO Network is pro-science and pro-vaccine. We urge you to be a superhero and protect yourself, your family, and your fellow geeks around the world. Don't be fooled by the forces of evil and their anti-science misinformation campaign. Consult the latest CDC guidelines, your doctor, and get the COVID vaccine today. Again, Bill Gallier, everyone, an exceptional creator and an all-around just good dude. Just a just a really good guy. His 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 wife was great. There was it was really it's always fun just seeing him. I say always fun. This is really the second time we've hung out, and I'm talking like he and I are old frat buddies. But uh, <laughs> yeah, just always 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 a fun time getting a chance to, to talk to Bill. Yeah. So as soon as I met Bill, we clicked right away. Right. Super nice guy, and I'm just happy he was there to answer all of my questions. And and to see how the process works. That was one of the things that Bill gave me. He showed me a guide of what the writer has to do in terms of the comic book script and, you know, writing in all the information in the in the bubbles. Right. Or sometimes when he's the writer and not the artist, he'll do cool things like he'll he'll fill in the art anyway. Yeah, right. So it was cool to actually see something in black and white of how comic book writers and comic book artists work to create a story. And while we were debating back and forth about uh, when Alan was created for Josie and the Pussycats, was it a month ahead of time or three months or whatever? Right. You know, it was interesting that Bill Gallia was already working on winter stories for later in the year and next year. I think it was actually for next year, for 2022. Right. So that was cool. Right. From initial assignment to deadline. Again, these are all facts that we need in our never-ending quest to prove that Josie and the Pussycats is not a Scooby-Doo clone. The evidence is there, people. Yep. It's there. That's it's right. It's all there. That's Joe right. Ruby and Ken Spears and the production team that was over Josie, they went out of their way so that you didn't think that Josie was a clone of anything. If you watch the show and pay attention, everything in that series that says anti-Scooby-Doo clone. Bill definitely helped get us closer to putting all of that in stone. Uh, speaking of Josie, that also came up during your time with Turner Classic Movies earlier this yeah. month of October. <laughs> well, yeah, um, I mentioned the Justice League as being a, a game changer. You know, right. being a little kid and seeing Superman show up with the Justice League for the first time and my introduction to the DC Universe. Right. But also the fact that as a kid, I was, and I didn't really realize it at the time, at nine years old, I was already looking at comic book properties that the studios were going to work on and not and and it wasn't making any sense to me why they would do Josie because it was just a regular teenage book there wasn't 
the music like the Archies. There wasn't the magic like Sabrina had. I didn't think that there was anything special with this. And I think the folks at Hanna-Barbera felt the same way. And that's why they decided to do a mashup. Right. It's like, let's take these characters and put them in the world of supervillains and super weapons. Because yeah, <laughs> every villain has some type of something that they're trying that's going to cause disruption in the world. And the other cool part about it is... All the superhero shows were gone, but yet you had supervillains showing up on Josie and the Pussycats. I just think it's just a brilliant way to do a comic book adaptation and make it your own, but still keeping the core characters the same. Yeah, everyone. So again, check out Mark's time with Turner Classic Movies. You can find him on the app during the lead in and lead out for the films Fantastic Voyage and Armored Car Robbery, both Richard Fleischer films. If you want to put a face to the voice, to the man, to the name, that's Mark McCray. Go check him out over on Turner Classic Movies. Fantastic Voyage is due to expire on the app on October 23rd, so hurry up and get there. Armored Car Robbery expires on November 8th. And then, you know, they got to they gotta keep those films coming and going. So if you're going to do it, go check them out now. Check it out. the best saturdays of our lives podcast is a co-production of the best saturdays of our lives studios and the weirdos workshop to get a personalized signed copy of the best saturdays of our lives book go to the best saturdays of our lives.com this is mark mccray signing off this has been a broadcast of the eso network Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.